Hello, thank you very much for inviting me to give a lunchtime lecture at UCL. I have to say that um, it's one of UCL's most attractive traits, these lunchtime lectures. I really think it's, it's a great tradition. I'm really proud to be part of it. Um, I want to talk to you today about uh, a sort of journey that I took as a material scientist from uh, over about 10 or 12 years to the point where, uh, in my current position now, um, as Jack was saying, my title is uh, I'm a professor of materials and society. Now, why the and society bit? And that, that, that is um, what I really want to talk to you, why I think it's so important and and the journey I've taken to get there and how that has ended up with something called the Institute of Making, a make space in the materials library, and also affected how my research, the directions of my research has gone. Okay, so where to start? Well, this is a kind of a mundane image, perhaps, of a cityscape in London. And as a material scientist, I was kind of able, let's say, to say to people, you know what, that may look mundane, but actually it's really interesting. It's actually a catalogue of materials, and not just any materials, essentially the materials that defined our civilization. So the ages of civilization are named after materials, and actually you don't really have to go very far, take much trouble to realize that we've created this wonderful place which every single part of it is kind of come from us. This represents us, this is who we are. And you may not like this image, you may not see your reflection in it, but it's our expression our society, our civilization. Now, as a material scientist, when people say to me, well, where do these materials come from? I used to have a very pat answer, which was, material scientists made them. And I look really proud. And, and then um, I would sort of go about that in my ignorance. And people would say, well, what do you actually do? What materials do you make? And I would say, well, I, I do this sort of thing. I, uh, I, I study the really interesting stuff. And of course, these days, you have to really get down the microscope, and you have to mathematically model things, and you have to understand the physics and the chemistry, and here's the kind of paper I produce. And they say, well, so you produce paper? I said, well, it's actually online these days most of the time. And so it's really virtual. So, what, so you, how is it that you can claim to have created this place, this stuff? It seems to me that you're, perhaps, the accusation was, fiddling around, studying things, but not creating the world. And I took this to heart, and I wondered about it, and it gnawed away at me, because I was very proud of this work, and I believed in it, but I still couldn't quite reconcile my life, going in, sitting down at my desk, doing the maths, reading the papers, going to the microscope, talking to students, producing this stuff, and really the fact that I was a material scientist claiming, or my clan were claiming to have kind of invented the, <laughs> the material wealth of the world. And of course, first of all, the answer you can give is this. If you want to say, how is it that material science is important to this set of things you see around you, you have to, in the end, come up with something that looks like this, which is, what is material science? It's not physics, it's not chemistry, it's not biology. It's, it's actually a way of looking at the world in terms of structure. Everything's a type of structure. And the world has structures at different scales. And so this diagram shows that we start at the top, big things, and we move down to tiny things. And it's quite easy to, it's quite easy to describe um, on the living side of the world because people are sort of familiar with the vocabulary. So big things, trees, whales. As you get smaller, you get things like mice, hair, fleas on mice, hairs on the flea. And then if you go into those hairs, you find they're multicellular. 
and they think, well, what's a cell? And they say, ah, oh, a cell is the ultimate building block of the living world. Everything is built from a cell. It's this Lego, it's living Lego. Very, very cunning stuff. And of course, you can look inside the cell, and we're doing that, and it's an extremely complex place, and then you can go down to DNA. And so, okay, that's how a living world works, maybe you say, and you've got to work the details out. Non-living side of the world's no different. It has all these scales in it, and actually, we've done quite a good job in the last 100 years of working out how to control these different scales. So whereas biologists just grows cells, <laughs> bloop, bloop, and they all kind of come out, and you grow bigger things, we kind of have to do, we have to sort of use machines to kind of get materials in different ways. And you think that hitting something with a hammer seems like a very, you know, uh, pretty rough way of molding something. But actually, when you're hitting something with a hammer, you're not just changing its outside shape. You're also changing its internal structure. So, you know, if you think about buildings and robots and mobile phones and then these tiny little wires, and inside them there's all these, you, you know there's lots of intricate parts, right? But inside those are materials, monolithic stuff, crystals, like here. And inside those are tiny little defects, they're tiny little machines, if you like, which can change and, and move, they're dynamic. And when you hit something with a hammer, you're controlling those structures. And if you do it right, you get something that's got, it's very strong, it's tough. Um, and if you do it wrong, thing falls apart. And if you, do it, if you do it really right, if you can actually control the structures that grow in there, you can make things like jet engines, or you can make things like transistors and silicon chips. And this is a picture of a single transistor and a silicon chip. And then you can connect them up, and you can do crazily cool things like making mobile phones and uh, computers. And that's what material scientists would say they've been doing the last 100 years. And, and then, not last but not least, you get the nanoscale, so the, the scale of the inside of a cell, the molecular machines that make cells work, and we're just getting the hang of manipulating that stuff. So here we are, fait accompli. We can do all this stuff. We're cool. I think we deserve the credit. But it's just not that simple. <laughs> and actually, once you really start thinking about where materials came from before the 20th century, they actually came from a whole different set of people. Um, so the materials you see here, they're not mostly actually a result too much of 20th century material science prowess. They are a result of 5,000 years of developing materials. And I want to give you, I just want to give you an example of one material, and I'm going to sweep through history very quickly with it, to give you an example of the kind of crazily complex weave that materials are in society. And I said that this was a reflection of us. And I want to kind of show that, but I want to show it in a more step-by-step -step way. So this, I'm going to do it through glass. This is, is uh, pectoral from the tomb of Tutankhamun. And in the middle there is not, it's not a diamond, it's not a ruby, it's a piece of glass. And they really revered glass. Um, it meant to them the power of transformation. You could take something like sand, which is all around, and you could create something jewel-like, transparent. Now, they couldn't do it very well. They weren't masters of glass, but they really revered it. And glass kind of made its way into the world via these ancient civilizations until, essentially, the Romans got hold of it. And they really nailed it. Romans really understood about purity of the courts. They really understood about fluxes and making the, reducing the melting point so you would actually make large amounts of glass. And crucially, they learned how to blow glass. So they got gobs of glass, they put a tube in it, and they blew it. It's ridiculous. If you've ever seen it, you think, my god, you must burn yourself, or it seems impossible. But actually, the Romans, <laughs> what did the Romans ever do for us? Yes, I know. So 
Uh, what did they do with that? Well, they made things like windows. Like before the Romans, the windows were wind holes, right? Windows. <laughs> and, and then they put glass over them. They invented things like the actual drinking glass itself. I was hoping I was going to have one, actually, but um, imagine this is a glass. Um, so the fact that you can see transparent liquid in here, and in fact, the Romans were obsessed with wine, so they were the first people to make vessels that you could drink wine from, that you could actually see the color of the wine. And that made a great deal to them. That, that influenced the culture of wine drinking, influenced what they were trying to do with wine, influenced their enjoyment, of course, and it, it grew throughout the, the Roman Empire, this, this love of wine. Intimately involved in glass itself. Um, the Roman Empire falls. They weren't paying attention to their borders, that kind of problem. You know how it is. And um, technology moves east. Um, and well, in fact, it's not quite as simple as that. But anyway, the interesting thing about the Chinese and the Japanese cultures and uh, Far East cultures is that they, they were predominant for a 1,000 years in materials technology. No one could better them. And yet they never really produced glass, not monolithic glass. And here I'm showing you some really fantastic pieces of uh, ceramics which has sort of never been bettered, really. Um, and I want to show you that they did have glass in them. The coating on the outside called the glaze is something they used and they controlled, in fact. Uh, that, that is actually why the mouthfeel of things like teacups is so extraordinary, because you have this very thin layer of glass which is inert, smooth, um, and protects the vessel, because otherwise it would be porous, so you don't get stains unless you want them. Um, and I'm just showing you the microstructures. So this is the sort of post. Post, there's a guy called um, C.S. Smith, who's a very famous, well, not, probably not famous, actually, but well-known material scientist in the 20th century who went and studied all of these, uh, these bowls and museums around the world and showed that they had amazing... So you can see these little bubbles at the top here on the glaze. They, that gives you the opalescence, that, that really beautiful, almost kind of shell-like quality, they could control the bubble size in the glaze. And they were, they were controlling that without thermometers, without furnaces, as we would know it, firing it with wood and charcoal. And here is uh, some little crystals, these are called, which look like flowers, but they're, you know, they're not. And, and they were controlling the crystals growing inside the glaze and getting these wonderful aesthetic qualities. But they didn't produce glasses, and we'll get back to that in a minute, because that might have been important into, into why they weren't preeminent in materials technologies as, as, as the centuries went on. Because what happened is in the West, glass was, was revered aesthetically. It was taken up by the chandelier makers, the glass cutters, uh, had no functional use except for rich people who wanted to drink wine, and of course windows, but if you were rich, you had to have them. And of course, you've got the cathedrals being built, you've got this you know, uh, architecture of light, which influences all you know, Western European cathedrals. But then comes along Galileo. He, uh, they realized that they, you know, lenses, glass lenses, which were being made by the Dutch into telescopes and used to make a lot of money on the markets by predicting, looking out to sea and predicting which ships are coming in with which cargoes and then doing a deal in the marketplace. <laughs> Quite smart. But actually, Galileo takes that idea of the telescope he makes his own lenses, or well, he doesn't make them, he gets the, and this is the crucial point, he doesn't make the lenses, he gets the people who are there, who've, who've nurtured this craft since Tutankhamun, to make them for him. And he looks into the skies, and he sees the moons around Jupiter, and he sees that the moon is not smooth, and he, and he has evidence. Without that evidence, it's very hard to see how anyone would believe, really, 
really believe that it's the earth that goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. And he's the one that really says, you've got to look. And I've got this, this transparent material without which I can't look. None of us can look. And after the telescope comes the microscope, and of course looking down, and of course that whole genre of material science and looking at structures and bacteria and biology and chemistry. And if I sort of fast forward, you know, you get the decorative arts, which are, are making these things possible. They're not just there to decorate. They are the ones who are doing the glass cutting. They're the ones who are doing the lens cutting. They're making it completely and utterly. They're, they're pushing science forward as much as they're pushing the arts forward. And you get this object, which, although it doesn't look aesthetically amazing, is transformational in science again. Anyone want to guess what this is? Sorry? Urinal. Urinal. No. Uh, <laughs> although, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of sharp toward the end. Um, it is a, um, it's a test tube. Okay, so the test tube comes along. As soon as, before this, alchemists are studying materials from a sort of chemical perspective and transformations, but they're looking down. They're looking down into pots and into, into, into crucibles. They're getting smoked. They're going mad, basically, as well. Um, and... Um, it's very hard to see transformations. It's very hard to see when they're happening. Suddenly you have aqueous chemistry. You can look when a precipitate comes. You can look when a change of shape or color comes, um, boiling. You can see it all. What would chemistry be without glass? <laughs> really, go into any lab today. You will see glass everywhere. Um, before this as well, glass, although windows had been invented by the Romans and they've been sort of incrementally improved, glass panes were about this size and you had to have wood or lead around them, and if you wanted to make a big one, you should have lots of them together. Why couldn't you make a big sheet of glass? Well, the answer was that actually the strength of glass depended on the tiny little cracks on the surface, not the atomic bonds. And to get rid of them was hard because actually what they were doing to make glass windows was to pour molten glass onto a metal platen and then literally roll it and smooth it out, pull it out. And of course, that the scratches on the metal were imprinted on, onto the glass, and so they, they defined the strength of the glass. Um, how to solve the problem? Pour it onto liquid metal. It's atomically smooth. Absolutely brilliant solution, a British solution, actually. And a company called Pilkington's in the north of England pioneered that, and they invented modern architecture in a way, right? Because without big bits of glass, suddenly the skyscrapers, the modern life, modernity, modernism, and the international style, they, they, they're not really kind of, they, they're not what they could be. Um, glass then gets mucked about with lots of other people. People start making it into little fibers and they create glass fiber composites and they change special effects forever. <laughs> Jaws, anyone who remembers that film, uh, and uh, is, is fiberglass, amazingly, even though it looks very realistic in the film. And, um, and fibers of glass, you know, people mucking about with them in the lab realize that actually they can use them to send light down round corners, up, down, round about, and so telecoms is born through glass, the speed of light. So this is sort of, you know, and this is, this is, some, this is one of the most exotic forms of glass, is a glass foam called aerogel. It's one of the lightest solids in the world, and it's used to collect space dust by NASA. So glass, I mean, glass, I mean, and that's not the end. I mean, glass is just continuing on. But the point I wanted to make about that is that once you start to look at the history of any one material, that you realize that it's, it's actually it's part of us, it's part of our history, it's part of, it reflects so many parts of our culture, but it also is a multidisciplinary subject. 
and has always been so. And so even though now, when, we, when you want to sort of talk about functionality of glass and, and push the boundaries of glass, you need to do the material science paradigm, which is to look at the different scales, and you need to say things like, OK, we want to improve the strength of glass. It's no point worrying about the chemical bonds, because that's not what's limiting it. It's the, it's the crack size, so we have to you know, pour it onto liquid, smooth things, and all that kind of stuff. Or if you want to break it, you need to, you need to crack it. So, so you can understand it in terms of, of these scales. And I don't know if anyone here has got um, those glasses that are photochromic, so they change, change color when you go in and out of a building. No one's got those? <laughs> well, that's a, piece of, that's a piece of basically photographic chemistry. So inside the glass, you've got a chemical reaction with the light, which is turning a halide, a silver halide, into silver crystals. And that's those in there. And they will turn there and back depending on whether they're receiving light or not. So it's exactly like photography. So you, you can change all sorts of things. You can change the hardness, you can change the formulas, you can change the color, as long as you know which scale you're trying to get at. But in, in doing this, what you see, the abstraction of the science, it excludes communities. There isn't an expression there of the fact that actually it's a multidisciplinary community and also it's part of culture. That is a, that's a purely you know, rational expression of our knowledge. And I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem for lots of reasons. And um, I want to just sort of spend <laughs> some time talking about them. Um, so here, here is, here's what I would say materials are really. They, they're part of an of a ever-moving, ever-changing culture. They're obviously interested, interesting to chemists, and, but they're just as interesting to chefs, edible materials. They're interesting to psychologists. They're interesting to engineers. Of course, you do things structurally. But they're also interesting to jewelers, historians, makers of all sorts. And who of us you know, isn't interested in them when we are redoing our bathroom? Suddenly, you know, whenever you think about materials as a subject, suddenly you're racked with these terrible decisions to tile or not to tile. To put a cold material into my bathroom, which should be warm and snug, how can we reconcile those two? And yet, people tile, and they tile, and they tile. There is a better way, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, so there's a lot more to materials because we interact with them, because they, have a, they, have a, they mean something to us historically. They mean to us something is, his, culturally. We are sensual beings. We touch them. We smell them. We walk on them. Um, we feel them. So... Where are those things? Where are those things in, in this discipline called material science? Or how does material science contribute to those things? Was my question. And in the end, I couldn't say that it was about this. I had to say that we need to get the scale thing in, but we need to do something else. And this is when I started collecting materials and just sort of having them around me. And um, I had a little case of materials. And this is the latest version of that case. Uh, and it is, there, is no, there is no substitute just to having them around you. You suddenly realize that actually these things are important to us. And actually, that, that once you have an object in your hand, all sorts of questions arise in your head. Where did it come from? Who made it? Why? What is it made of? Who knows what that is? That looks like a metal, but it's not. <laughs> this looks like a piece of Formula One. It is. <laughs> <laughs> This looks like an early window. It is, but it's a ceramic, and it's mined. It's mica. And, you, you know, there's no end to the interest and the, and the weird things. Here's a piece of self-healing concrete. <laughs> and, 
And so the world goes on. And actually, what that does is it starts to open up conversations about who made it and why. And all these kind of things about environment, about mining, about making, about manufacturing, about fashion, about design, they all start coming to the fore as soon as you have the real stuff in front of you. So I met up at that same time with an artist and a designer, Martin and Zoe, and we all realized that we had the same problem with materials, but from different angles. Like they, they, they had different opinions about it, but we all realized there was something really missing. That you couldn't approach materials authentically without recognizing that it's a much bigger subject. And um, so we started building our own materials library, and it got bigger and bigger. <laughs> and we recruited different people. And actually, there was sort of no end to it. And at the moment, uh, you know, this is the team that we have in the Institute of Making, which is full of different people from different backgrounds, artist, designer, physicist, anthropologist, ceramicist and artist, um, dancer, <laughs> jeweler, engineer. And actually, that, that group of people feels to me like a group of people that have at least some of the dimensions of this subject. And as a team of people, I feel much more confident that we can have a go at, at trying to etch away at what, this, what we can do, how we can sort of approach it from, from both a material science point of view, but also to, to do justice to its multidimensionality. And so we started to, to make things out of different materials that had functionality that you could study, but also had, were objects, had a cultural significance. So we did a, a series of study on the sound of materials by making tuning forks out of different materials. And we, we did a study on the physics of them, on their damping characteristics and on their frequencies, but we also gave them to musicians and said, what do you make of these? Um, yeah, so we did the science, but we also, we also you know, studied them. And we made a set of spoons, and I have the spoons here, <laughs> of different materials. And we found out, actually, by doing that, that no one had ever worked out, well, they jumbled up a bit, <laughs> no one had ever worked out why different metals taste differently from each other. So immediately, by actually making them and trying them out and giving them to chefs and giving them to people who like food, we found out that there were some scientific questions that needed answering, which we then went on to do. So we actually did publish. I never thought I'd ever publish in Food Quality and Preference, but <laughs> we did. And um, we started meeting psychologists, and we started studying, and chemists, and, and we started making measurements, but we also, those studies involved... Um, having a dinner and publishing papers um, and going to art galleries and interfacing with the people who cared about materials from a different perspective. Um, so there's a, there's a dinner we have with these spoons and that's Heston Blumenthal on the left. And this guy on the right is, should be more famous than Heston because he's a guy called Harold McGee and anyone who knows about the science of eating and food knows that he is the godfather of it. Um, Anyway, it was a great honor to have these people who are very experts in taste come to our experiment. But also, they wouldn't have really, we wouldn't have been here, we wouldn't have had that dinner in the Michelin star restaurant, and we wouldn't be mucking about with the taste of materials and their juxtaposition with food if we hadn't kind of stepped off into this chasm of slight uncertainty. And I have to admit, worrying them. I mean, anyone here who's a dyed in the wool academic knows that once you step off that line of, <laughs> of I do this, and that's what I do, and I'm. Uh, I, I write papers on materials, uh, and it's this particular topic. Once you step off that, it's actually, you feel very vulnerable. And um, you think, maybe I don't know a thing about anything. And actually, the truth is, 
<laughs> you do realize it, your gaps in your knowledge are huge. Um, also did TV program development. This was one earlier in the year because really, really believe that actually we needed to widen this conversation to the whole nation. And, and actually the only way to do it is to, is to actually get involved in the media and, and talk to the BBC. And I spent two years <laughs> sending in the proposal for this, this series and being knocked back. And actually, I mean, it's very hard to get people excited about the word materials. And actually, <laughs> it's only when we took that word out, <laughs> weirdly enough, that things started going. So it wasn't even called materials, it was called how it works. And, but it was about materials. And we then came up with this idea of an institute, which was about putting this all together and, and, and creating something that we could all do together that was an intersection. So this isn't where people with disciplines sit. It's where people with disciplines meet and do projects together and then go back to their own departments and do their own very fine work with their own equipment to, to, to find out the details. Um, and we, we knew it had to have three things. We knew it would have to have a materials library because you've got to have the stuff. I can't tell you how, much, how important it is to have the stuff, to have these conversations, because this stuff talks to people in a way that an equation or a paper um, or even an art gallery and an exhibition doesn't. The ability to pick something up freely and not to feel that's an exhibit, not to feel that's an artifact that you mustn't touch, that actually it, 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 it mediates conversation. So we had to have a materials library. And of course, once you have a materials library for a while, we realize that you can't have a materials library without the making of materials, without the making of stuff. So you have to have a make space. Um, and we met Anthony Finkelstein, who's Dean of Engineering here, and he already had plans for a make space. So we had the materials library. We had this institute, and we put two and two together. And what you see outside is the result of those coming together of like-minded people. Um, Anthony really seeing the point of it in a university setting like UCL and having the ability to make it happen, not just the money, but the space, and driving it forward. And I think he really deserves a huge credit for that. And also the make space community who are here at UCL. So suddenly we had this really strong core of which we can spin out to do the materials and making theory and development. So this is the research stuff, a bit like our spoon stuff, and we've done other stuff on touch and taste. But there's some other research that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. And the other thing is that you must, you must keep everybody with you. You must keep telling people about it because these people actually, and this has happened to us many times before, they feed in great ideas, they feed in great materials, and they're part of this culture. So you can't exclude them. You can't say you're studying culture and then exclude them. <laughs> so, so you've got to do all these three things. And they do feed off each other. So, so it, it is all coherent. Um, and just want to tell you a bit about actually how it always all works. So this is just a few weeks ago. But it's a bit we're further on than that. <laughs> we're going to open this week. <laughs> it's open to all UCL. Admin, technical, admin, academic stuff. We don't care who you are. You're a cleaner, you're a professor. You're all welcome. You're all equal. Because you all know something about stuff. You all use it. You all live it. You clothe yourself in it. And you're part of a culture that comes from it. And we want you to experiment. We want you just to mend your bike. We want you to just, just use the materials library and just glorify in it. Just sit at the table and eat from the spoons. Um, whatever you want. Um, Matilda's Library is looking very beautiful at the moment, and it's open to all members any well, during our opening hours. <laughs> and the public are going to be welcomed in every month. And we, we, we want to try and get that more frequently, but we, at the moment, have limitations in funding to make that happen. Uh, we've got events. We've got things like talks, masterclasses, 
So we're going to have a neon glass maker. We're going to have people who do blacksmithing. We're going to have people who make solar cells. We're going to have people who do robotics. We're going to do programming Arduino chips. We're going to have a lot. Um, so you want to learn a skill, you'll be able to come to a masterclass. We'll have seminars. We'll have workshops. And we're just basically trying to build this, this community around, around the stuff, around making and the materials, and, and everything to do with it. So if you have ideas for new events, please, please get in contact. Um, and yes, finally, this makes sense <laughs> to me, anyway. This is why I feel very happy. It's because, actually, this stuff's important now. Because this stuff, I have this real ambition <laughs> that someday someone is going to make something in the make space which needs an equation which doesn't exist. And they're going to say to me, I just don't understand how this glaze interacts with this ceramic to create these tiny... I've done it once, but I can't repeat it. We need to study it. We need to make it repeatable. And I think that's the point where you spin off and you do some very, very niche, absolute avant-garde science or mathematics or physics or chemistry. And, and it's, it's coming from the experiment. It's coming from the play and the mucking aboutness that these things will then have a lot more meaning, I think. Um, and, of course, the scale will then all become... Then we'll see the culture and the scale because actually the people are, are, are that up the top <laughs> and, and people's senses are all different scales. Um, I'm rushing slightly. <laughs> and I just wanted to say that you know, the research side of things is going very well at the moment. We've got three big grants for, for materials which are born out of this, uh, this mechanism. One is Light Touch Matters is an EU project to make materials that um, if you touch them, they light up. And these are going to be Materials you can injection mold, you can make whole objects that will know they're being touched uh, and light up. A second one is wearable system materials, which is an EPSC project with um, Nick Tyler, who's leading that, to make a piece of clothing you can wear underneath your clothes that will assist you in walking if you're having difficulty. So it knows when you're moving and it stiffens at the right places to give you support, and then it relaxes when you when you bend your leg, leg back again. Um, so these are ongoing, and they all and, and the last one is just announced today by the EPSC. So um, Mark Olivier uh, Coppens is leading a bioinspired engineering thing when the Ministry of Making is a big part of it. Um, and um, so there's, there's a huge amount already, actually, of, of really interesting research projects that involve people, they involve stuff, they involve top-quality science, but they also don't ignore the fact that materials are not just about science and engineering. They're about a lot more than that. And if you want to kind of contribute, if you want to be part of the research side of things, um, write to us. We've got an, on the 19th day, we've got a workshop where we're really trying to gather the people at UCL who have an interest in materials and making from a research perspective and want to get involved with us. And so uh, get involved uh, for the 19th of April. And finally, I'd just like to say thank you to so many people who've made this happen. And of course, it's not just me at all. Um, Zoe and Martin are the two directors, as well as myself. Um, Sarah and Ellie, Richard are all part of the core team who are making it happen now. Uh, Phil is also still involved. He's an old postdoc of mine. Graziella has moved on at the moment, but still like to thank her. And Supinia, of course, a PhD student. Uh, Anthony, as I said before, really pivotal in bringing us here to UCL and giving us the space and allowing us to flourish and the steering committee and the UCL community. And we've got a lot of people who've given us money and donors. I've got one in the front row here, actually. And uh, I'd like to thank them, too. And this is just the beginning. <laughs> it's taken... 12 years to get to this point, and now the fun starts. Over to you. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. We do have some time for questions. If you do have a question, 
Please wait for a microphone so that people listening online can hear. Hello. I went to your December workshop and it was really, really enjoyable. So I'd like to recommend uh, your events. Um, I'm retiring at the end of this month, so can retired staff members carry on their membership? UCL alumni are all welcome. Right. We haven't quite worked out how to do it yet because of, uh, there's some sort of card issue, but we, yes, right. that is definitely the intention. Up in the box at the back. Um, that was really interesting. Can you just reiterate, UCL alumni with three degrees, they can definitely do it, join, yes? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. We haven't okay. worked out how to get the card thing to work yet. but we, we've... Well, we've got cards to go to okay. the library, but I just, it sounds so interesting. Yep. Thank you. Brilliant. Any other questions? Down the front here. Uh, what was the tastiest spoon? Ah, right. Okay, let's get into the real nitty-gritty. So we did blind taste tests of the different materials. Now, you would have thought, perhaps, that because most people eat out of stainless steel, which is almost completely tasteless, um, that they wouldn't really know how other metals taste, because actually the last time most people put a weird metal in their mouth was probably when they were the age of two or one and a half. But we found that people could very... We had tin, copper, uh, zinc, Gold, silver, chrome, stainless steel, silver. Did I think, oh, anyway, uh, seven? Seven, is it? Yeah, seven. That's eight. Seven, anyway. <laughs> and uh, we found that they could very well distinguish the tastes. We asked them to rate them in terms of, of dislike, uh, bitterness, metallicness, sweetness. And we found that they rated gold the sweetest, even though they couldn't have known they had gold in their hand. And um, that's interesting. <laughs> Uh, when we went on to the when we went on to the to doing the actual with food, we did it with um, both blind with creams, and we found that zinc spoons made the creams taste sweeter, and actually that's quite an interesting result because actually zinc on its own is very very unpleasant. Um, and then we went to the meal, we found that things like zinc and copper, which are again unpleasant, were, were horrible except for with things like curries, where they actually sort of seem to add something. And they're, of course, a subjective judgment. And we have this ambition, which I hope will come to, to light, which is that someone will invent a dish in which you have to have a copper spoon, or you have to have a gold spoon. And, uh, yeah, we sort of... I mean, I'm quite proud of that study, because actually we did, we did everything. We kind of did some really good science. We did some great making, and we invented some new objects that live in the world. And... We kind of influenced some chefs, and we, we actually got the research out there in many different ways. We got it out there in terms of research papers, but also meals, and we've done events where people can taste the spoons. And I think the, object, the great thing about objects is that they allow you to do all that, that the object itself is a piece of science, it's a piece of engineering. I mean, in the same way that everything is, of course, you know, but um, it, it's, yeah, I, I recommend it. <laughs> Thanks, so down in the middle. Hello, can you tell us a little more about alternatives to tiling your bathroom in cold ceramic, <laughs> ceramic tiles? Thanks. Okay, so I got into this area of, of materials called psychophysics, which is, which is the idea that although we can define the strength of this and, the, and its toughness quite, quite rigorously, 
If, if you're to ask me how it feels, like even how cold it feels, it's, it's, a, it's a subceptive judgment, right? But there are some physical properties that do influence that, which we've studied, like its thermal conductivity and its, um, and its, uh, its heat capacity. So when you do studies of this, you have to st you're studying a, a, a type of person, a culture, maybe different sexes, and how, they, how the different bits of the material inter inter interface with you. Now, tiles are ceramics, and they're good conductors. They feel cold. They have a glaze on them, which we talked about earlier, so they look shiny. And actually, we associate coldness and shininess with cleanliness. So there is a big push to things that are shiny and cold because actually they make us feel that this place is clean and people like clean bathrooms. But because they are cold, they are cold. <laughs> and you have to put your feet on cold things and the whole place feels cold. And in this country, I think in a Mediterranean country, that's, there's lots to be said for that. But in this country, it seems to me that's perhaps not so obvious. So the bathroom we recently did, <laughs> where we went through this whole material selection process with this insider knowledge, um, we decided that wood <laughs> was the best material for a British bathroom <laughs> because it's warm, um, has that feeling of kind of being natural, um, and uh, you can get many different types of it which, which, which will you know, change the way the water behaves on it. Um, but that's just a subjective judgment again. <laughs> but I, I, I am bemused by why by tiles are the de facto always the answer. It just seems to me that there's so much against them on your toes, for instance. We do have time for one more question. Thanks a lot. Mark, I've heard this talk many times. Every time it's different, and you make it more and more interesting each time. Okay. <laughs> um, where have you got to with your 3D printing? Right. Um, so for this, this, um, this research project with the... Um, wearable system materials, that is going to be 3D printed. Um, and that's, we think that's the only way to get the actuators and the electronics that we're going to need to do it in with the structural materials that we're going to need to, to make. Um, the MakeSpace itself is going to have three 3D printers. One, to people to muck about on, which is cheap and cheerful. And anyone who becomes a member and just doesn't know about the technology, they could come to a masterclass. We'll learn how to use it. Then we've got two more sophisticated ones with more materials. Um, I guess we hope that the community will, will run ahead in different ways. We can't quite predict. But I think 3D printing is going to be a big technology. And I would like, certainly, be encouraging people to play around with it in our make space. Fantastic. It just remains for me to say thank you all for coming. Thank you for your questions. And thanks, most of all, to Professor Mark Medovinik.